It's been said that those who fling mud at others lose ground. Or he who belittles is little. And there's a lot of truth to that. The fact is, there will always be critics. And fault finding is not difficult for those who are always looking to find it. Because make no mistake, they will find it. When you express an idea at work, you know, there's always somebody who shoots that idea down, like, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Or even with your family, you make a suggestion, and, well, no, that's a bad idea. We've already done that. You know, that's not going to work. Or, or you do something, it's like, I, done, I wouldn't have done it that way. I've done it this way. You know, there's always, th- that's going on. There are always those who are looking to find faults. We can't avoid them. In fact, it's been said, if you want to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. You can't escape it. So how do you deal with it? How do you handle criticism? Well, Paul is answering his critics here in this passage, and Paul had lots of critics, lots of fault finders, lots of mudslingers over the course of his ministry. And Corinth was no exception, as in his absence, there was a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers, uh, who in his absence, they came in saying, yes, yeah, place your faith in Jesus Christ, but there's more to it. It's Jesus plus the old covenant. It's Jesus plus the law. And so they were undermining the gospel of grace and Paul's message. And the best way they thought of doing that was by undermining Paul's character and uh, his authority. So in verses 7 through 18, you have Paul's response to their attacks. Paul was having to answer his critics on many fronts. He was attacked in really in three areas, and the first one we already saw back in verse 1, if you would read back in verse 1 of chapter 10, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They were accusing Paul of being a weak leader. They were saying, they were saying Paul is unsure. He vacillates in his leadership. He's weak when he's with you, but when he's gone, he writes these bold letters to bolster his authority. They even accused him of walking in the flesh. So they were essentially calling Paul a hypocrite. That was their first accusation. But then they go on to accuse Paul of overemphasizing his authority, and even worse, they criticize his appearance, the way he looked. Essentially, they're saying Paul can't be an apostle because he doesn't look the part. Well, our message today is on rightly responding to criticism. As Paul responds by correcting the perspective of his, of his critics. And first, he's, he talks about the right use of spiritual authority. The right use of spiritual authority. Verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. So he opens with a question here. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? And the answer to that question is, yes. Yes, we do. By nature, we are appearance-oriented. 
We look at a person and we, well, we notice what they wear or we notice their hair. Maybe we notice how they talk and we start assessing their background. Whatever it might be, we start making visual judgments. We make visual assessments. We are appearance-oriented. Now, how to prove this? You have a mirror at home. I'm pretty sure we all have a mirror at home. And I can fairly confidently say that everyone here looked into a mirror this morning. What are you doing? Well, you're looking at your appearance. You are assessing your appearance because your mirror is going to tell you, hey, before you leave the house, you might want to address this or this or that. You might want to pay attention to these things. And so you do because we are, we all look at things according to the outward appearance. When the prophet Samuel came to the house of Jesse, and he was looking for a king, and he noticed the firstborn, Eliab, and he, he was tall and handsome, and Samuel looked at him like he is kingly material. And Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointing is, is before me, his anointed is before me. And God spoke to him and said, uh, no, wrong. You got this one wrong, Samuel. For God does not see as a man sees. A man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And some were judging Paul by outward appearance, especially the Judaizers. And we'll get more into that in verse 10. But let's continue on verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Paul admits here that he did speak of his authority, and he's not ashamed of it. But understand, whenever Paul stated his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he never did it for himself. There were times when God's word was called into question, and he would have to interject and say, hey, hold on, hold on. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, what I teach is true. What you're saying is false. And he would declare his apostleship as a stance for the truth and for the gospel. But he never did it to tear people down. As he says here, I'm doing this for edification. It's to build up, not to tear down. So Paul says, yes, I did speak of my authority, but it was to encourage and to strengthen you. It seems that the Judaizers were jealous of what Paul had done in Corinth. Maybe you've experienced that, where maybe you were promoted or you were recognized at work, and immediately you have your critics. You know, those who, not, not against your credentials, but they felt like they got passed over. So all of a sudden, they're starting to criticize everything you do. They get upset. They're jealous because they were overlooked, and then they start firing off the critical remarks. And this can be devastating in the workplace. And it, believe it or not, it even happens in the body of Christ at times where people get upset. Well, why did they get picked to do this? Why didn't I get to get to do this? There's, there's always these kinds of things that come up and rise up within people. But imagine how Paul must have felt. He's being criticized, or he, he's being criticized by these men in Corinth. But the fact is, he's the one that began this church. He was there discipling them for a year and a half. And Paul wasn't here to tear down. He was here to edify the church as a whole. And he adds in verse 9, Lest I seem to terrify you by letters. When he left the church, he had to write a letter rebuking them for their attitude. But again, it was not to tear them down. It was to build up. They're, they're saying, well, his letters are tough. 
but he's a wimp in person. And he goes, you want me to come and express authority in person? Well, I can do that. Now, this is to be true of every level of authority that God has granted. In the church, in the home, in the workplace, uh, in the government, God has established levels of authority and submission. And he does it, it's all put in place to build up, not to tear down. So in, in all of those areas, when people are tearing down, where, whether it's in the church, uh, spiritual abuse, somebody's shaming people for doing things or that sort of thing and tearing down, that's outside of what God has established that authority for. Or in the home, where someone's always constantly shaming uh, someone or tearing them down. No, it's to build up. So when things get upside down and people, the obvious response is to backlash. And you have this overcorrection, this pendulum swing of rebelling against authority in all of these areas. But God's intent was that there would be authority and submission, but the purpose is to build up. It's to edify. And Paul now, he's going to quote his critics in verse 10. He's quoting them. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. I want to read this to you from a few other translations. Here's the NIV. In person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Here's the New Living Translation. He is weak, and his speeches are worthless. And here's one even more harsh. The Living Bible, there is nothing great about him, and you have never heard a worse preacher. So get this, they're criticizing his appearance, his bodily presence. I mean, that's low, criticizing his appearance, that's shallow. But by outward appearance, it seems that Paul was unimpressive, you might say. He was not tall, dark, and handsome. In fact, here's a description of Paul from an early Christian writing probably around the year 200, that says this, describing Paul, that he is a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. So if that description is even remotely correct, he wasn't getting you know, his headshot on the billboard in every town he walked into. That's, it was not his, his selling point. But the criticism, ultimately here, the criticism was that Paul doesn't look like much of a leader. He didn't, he didn't fit the part. He didn't look the part. And then they even criticized his speaking, and that must have been extremely tough for him to hear because essentially that's what he did for a living. He was going around from city to city evangelizing. He was a missionary proclaiming the good news, but as the New King James says, his speech is contemptible. Now understand, Paul was persuasive. He was powerful as a speaker, but he lacked a refined eloquence that the Greeks uh, were so fond of. They were all about that, and that's probably what this is in reference to. In fact, when Paul went into the marketplace in one city, he was having conversations with different people and, and some of the Stoic philosophers, the Athenians and another group of philosophers, and they, they said, what is this babbler trying to say? They didn't like his style. He didn't match up 
to the oratory skills that were so highly prized in the Greek culture. He didn't have the eloquence or the sophistication that his worldly contemporaries had. And Paul even acknowledged as much. He didn't come to impress people with his speech. Uh, That was not his aim. He came with the simple message of the gospel. When Paul first came to Corinth, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, he said, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He says, you're right. I'm not very impressive, physically speaking. Uh, And I really don't have a lot to say regarding human wisdom, or nor have eloquent speaking abilities, but I come in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. So the Judaizers criticized Paul in three areas. One, he's just a hypocrite. I mean, he acts one way with us. He's different when he's away from us. Two, he overemphasizes his authority. He talks about himself being an apostle. And third, he doesn't look too good, and he can't speak too well either. But look, look at verse 11. Paul continues, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul's taking them up on their challenge. He's saying, hey, if you want the tough version of Paul, you'll get him. I will come to you with all the authority that I've shown in my letters. So it's a warning to the false teachers, uh, the Judaizers, but also to the people who are entertaining these false teachers uh, against Paul. He says, yes, I declared my authority as an apostle, but it was the right use of spiritual authority because I came to edify the church. That's the right use of spiritual authority, edification. So he's standing up for the truth, not for himself. Well, next he talks about the wrong measure of spiritual maturity in verse 12. The wrong measure of spiritual maturity. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Notice you see a lot of ourselves and themselves. In fact, themselves is five times in that one verse. Why? Because Paul's critics had such a high view of themselves and a low view of him as an apostle. They compared themselves amongst themselves, which is what a lot of people do today. They only compare themselves within their own special group. And then they get very proud of themselves, and from that, pride comes, and then comes criticism. This was the mindset of the Pharisees. They were their own special group. They're like, we're we're the holy ones of Israel, and everyone else is kind of down here. Well, Jesus blasted that idea when he gave the parable in Luke 18, verse 10. Jesus speaking says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He's comparing himself to his other contemporaries and even to himself. Obviously, he's very proud of himself in this prayer. Verse 13, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who is he comparing himself to? The Lord. He's comparing himself to God. And because he did, he saw himself as a sinner, and it made him humble. He came humble and repentant. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That was the assessment Jesus gave. And here in verse 12, the Judaizers were just comparing themselves amongst themselves, and this means a couple of things. One, it means making yourself the measure of others, and two, it means making others the measure of yourself. And that's wrong for at least two reasons. First, there didn't, there didn't seem to be a lot of truly spiritual people among the Corinthian Christians to give a good comparison to. I mean, how much of a compliment uh, could it be if you're the most spiritual person amongst the Corinthians because they were a carnal church, carnally minded? So that wasn't really that big of a compliment. And it was also wrong because it only measured on a human scale focused on, again, the outward appearance. So we're not to make ourselves the measure of others, feeling that we are superior to them if by outward appearance maybe we are more successful, at least outward, by outward appearance. That leads to pride and a critical spirit. That's where it stems from. You get this critical spirit. On the other hand, we're not to make others our measure, feeling that we are failures if by outward appearance they appear more successful. We can miss out what God is doing in our lives because we're too busy looking around at what everyone else is doing and how they appear. Both are wrong measures of spiritual maturity. Listen, God wants to do a work in you and through you. So don't make the mistake of using the wrong measure of spiritual maturity. Paul says that's not wise. It's not wise because God measures differently. There's only one opinion that truly matters. What does God think of you? What does God think? God measures differently than we measure. So that's the wrong measure of spiritual maturity, comparing ourselves with one another. But here's the, the third point, the right measure of spiritual maturity. Verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us a sphere which especially includes you. Paul's authority in the church was not unlimited. God had granted him a sphere of authority. He was declared to be the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter the apostle to the Jews. So he had that sphere to go to the Gentiles and that sphere included the Corinthian church, especially since he founded this church. Verse 14 for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors. We'll stop there. He says that because that's exactly what the Judaizers did. Paul established this church. He discipled them for a year and a half, and he left to go do some missionary endeavors. And as soon as he leaves, here come these false teachers 
like spiritual parasites coming in on another man's labor. They're seeking to tear it down. And that's what cults do all the time. They see people who come to Jesus, somebody who's maybe a new believer, they're excited about the Lord, and then someone, they come along, and well, that's not really all of how it works. That's not really how it is. You need to do this. You need to add this. You need to read this extra book over here. You need to join our group. That's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They're seeking to build on another man's foundation. But Paul, he wanted to extend the boundaries of the gospel as a missionary church planter. Paul wanted to go where no man had gone before with the gospel and to not build upon other men's labors. And so Paul continues in in verse 15, But having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Paul is optimistic. He believed that the majority of the church would dismiss the critics, that they would grow spiritually and by that multiplication even enlarge Paul's sphere even more. Verse 16, to to go in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. In Romans chapter 15, Paul said his desire was to go to Rome. And he eventually did get to do that, and he got to preach the gospel in Rome. And then he even expressed the desire to take the gospel all the way to Spain. We don't know if he made it there, but his intent was to go there, to take the gospel there, uh, into regions beyond. But he makes it clear that his intent was not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. In another passage in Romans 15, 20, he says this, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Which is exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They had been deceptive from the very beginning. They were glorifying themselves, glorying in themselves and in the work of others. Verse 17, Paul says, But he who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. He's using a quote from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. He's using that to rebuke the Corinthian Christians who found their glory either in Paul or against Paul. He sweeps all of that away, showing that we should not glory in ourselves or in another or against another. We should only glory in the Lord. The Christian, uh, the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians, They were prone to glory in wisdom, as was so highly prized in the Greek culture, or to glory in might, or to glory in riches, instead of glorying in the Lord. If you're going to glory, meaning to to boast or to to take pride in something, glory in the Lord. Glory in who He is. And the great thing about glorying in the Lord is we can always do it. Uh, you're never so high that you can't glory in the Lord. You're never so low that you can't glory in the Lord. We can all glory in the Lord. And here's the bottom line, verse 18. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Paul wanted the respect of the Corinthian Christians, but he wanted it for their sake, not his own. He knew that they were hurting their own spiritual growth and maturity by rejecting him. But as for himself, Paul was satisfied with the approval 
that came from the Lord. He says, I'm content to leave my approval in the hands of God. That's the place every Christian must come to. It's a dangerous thing to commend oneself or to approve oneself. So Paul says, I leave my ministry in the hands of God. And that's a good place to leave it, just to leave it all before him. So Paul has his critics, and what does he do? He responds by correcting their perspective. He gives the right use of spiritual authority, which is edification. The wrong, he talks about the wrong measure of spiritual maturity, which is comparison. And then he talks about the right measure of spiritual maturity. It's all about advancing the gospel, making it go out to where people have not heard it before, and to glory in the Lord. Now, I want to talk about, as we wrap up here, I want to talk about some practical application that we can pull out of here regarding criticism. So we've talked about Paul's journey here in chapter 10. But for us, uh, there's a few things I want to point out. And number one is, expect criticism. We will all be criticized. You can't avoid it. It's not a matter of, of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when it will happen. So when it does come, let's not be thrown off guard by it, but, but be prepared. And Because if we're thrown off guard, we can respond in one of two extremes. One extreme is to immediately start fighting back and to get defensive. Like, oh, you're wrong. No. Uh, and not hear anything they have to say. That's not the right response. On the other hand, you don't want to respond to the extreme of being shocked and just shattered anytime someone makes any criticism or correction. Like, I can't believe you said that. I'm, I'm crushed. People often fall in one of those two categories. The best thing you can do when criticism comes, even if it comes in a harsh way, is to acknowledge it, acknowledge the criticism, and then let them know you will consider it, and then pray about it. So expect it, and but pray about it, which leads to the second thing, evaluate the criticism. Why? Because not all criticism is bad. So when it, the criticism comes, take the time to evaluate it. Uh, Sidney Harris wrote this, What people say about us is never quite true, but it's never quite false either. They always miss the bullseye, but they rarely fail to hit the target. There could be some truth in what they say. So take the time to, to listen to the criticism and evaluate it. But again, don't fall into one of two extremes. Don't take it too lightly and just blow it off, ignore it. And also don't take it too seriously. Because if you, if you take it too lightly and you just disregard all criticism that comes your way, that is a foolish mistake. Now, I realize there's some people that come, they come in the right manner, and they have some corrective criticism. Maybe you've even asked for it. You've invited, hey, can you critique this? That's different. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when someone just lays something on you, don't just disregard it right off the bat because you might miss some valuable instruction. Criticism can often help us to see blind spots and show us things that we might not otherwise have seen. So it gives us better surrounding perspective. There was an older minister who wrote a letter to a young pastor who had just undergone some deep criticism. And he said this to him. He said, it doesn't matter what happens to us, but our reaction to what happens to us is of vital importance. I think you must expect more and more criticism, my friend. 
with the increasing responsibility, this is inevitable. And isn't that true? That the more responsibility you have, the more critics you have. We see this uh, not just in the church, you see it in the world. You know, you, you read about a CEO of a company and they're getting criticized for the, how they operate, how they run the company, or maybe, I don't know, a million-dollar football coach. And, you know, you never played football in your life, but you have a lot of opinions about that particular subject, you know. But it does come with the territory. It comes with the territory. As believers, greater responsibility keeps us more dependent upon God, and it causes us to walk humbly before God. So the greater responsibility as believers we have. So we're to walk humbly and depend upon the Lord. So that's good counsel. Criticism causes us to walk humbly. So seek to learn what you can from the criticism. Don't take it too lightly. See it as an opportunity for spiritual growth. But also do not let it consume you to where you just internalize it and it just eats you up. I like the comparison of Chewing gum. Chew on it. You know, get the essence of the flavor. Chew it, but don't swallow it. Don't internalize it. Because if you, if you, if you just, it can just beat your, you can beat yourself up over it. And some people are prone to do that. Any criticism, they just beat themselves up over it. And I've been there in, in certain cases. I, I learned early on in ministry that, you know, you can't please everybody. You know, this person comes and says, well, hey, do it this way. But then someone else comes, no, you need to do it this way. This is how we did it back in so-and-so at this church. And suddenly you're hearing all these things and you just feel like, well, I just give up. Why, why am I doing all of this? When you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody and you lose sight of the vision or the direction that you have, that God's given you. It reminds me of a story. Uh, I may have used this before. It's a story of an old man whose grandson was riding a donkey. And they were traveling from town to town. And the man heard someone in the city uh, say something. Hey, would you look at that? Look at that old man. He's suffering on his feet while this young boy is riding this donkey. I mean, he's young enough. He's strong enough. He can walk. He's capable. Well, the old man took that to heart. So he starts riding the donkey while the young boy walked. But as soon as they arrived into the next city, they heard someone say, well, would you look at that? A healthy man riding this donkey while this poor young boy is left to suffer walking. So the man and the boy rode on the donkey together. However, they got to the next city, and you know where this is going. You know, they heard someone say, would you look at that? Two, uh, two heavy brutes on this poor little donkey making this donkey suffer. So they both get off the donkey, and they start walking alongside the donkey. And in the next town, someone says, would you look at that? What a waste. Uh, a perfectly good donkey, and there, it's not even being used. So finally, as they come to the next city, people were astonished to see a young boy walking and an old man carrying a donkey. <laughs> you can't please everybody. We all have critics. So number one, we will all be criticized, so expect it. It's going to happen. Number two, take time to evaluate it. But what if someone's criticism of you hits the mark? Even if it's said in a wrong way, and you evaluate it and you realize, you know what, 
Maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. What do you do? You thank the Lord for it. You thank God for the criticism. Thank God that God used that individual to point out a blind spot in your life. And if there was an argument that took place between the two of you, and maybe that's how the whole thing came up, the criticism came up, then take the time to go to them and to make that right. But in, in work out those details, but in humility, be willing to say, you know, I realize you were right. You were right about that. Thank you for pointing, pointing that out. And it will blow them away. But what if a person is criticizing you about something, and as you examine it, and as you pray about it, and you compare that issue with Scripture and in your life, and you believe that, you know, that doesn't hit in anything. I'm still not connecting with that. I still think I'm in the right in this particular situation. What do you do about that? I love the words of Chuck Swindoll. He said it well. He said, stand firm. Don't let others budge you from what you know is right, and you are sure of what God has called you to do and be. Listen to the person's word in humility, but you don't have to feel obligated to confirm them with what you know is not true. It is possible to set the criticism aside with humility, as Paul said, boast in the Lord and not in yourself. So that if you know that you're in the right before the Lord regarding that particular criticism, then express that to them in the right way, not uh, as a reflex, evaluate all criticism. And if it's correct, embrace it. If the criticism is based on a misunderstanding, seek to get together to make that right. But after you evaluate it and you believe you're still right before the Lord, then express that to them. Listen, there, there are some people that I'm good friends with that we've learned to agree to disagree agreeably on certain things. That's okay. We, we all, iron sharpening iron, we, we encourage one, each, one another, and that's how it goes. But, but what about the person who, and maybe you've been thinking about this through the whole message, what about the person who criticizes you all the time? They rarely have anything good to say. And you've tried to meet with them. You've tried to work this out, but they don't want to meet with you. They don't want to talk about this. All they want to do is bring in more accusations and more criticisms. To that, I would say, if you tried all those things, let the Lord defend you. He will take care of you. You know, many of Jesus' critics, he never even addressed. In Romans 12, 18, Paul wrote this, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In that verse, he's saying that you can't live peaceably with all men because it won't always be possible. It takes two people, at least, to work that out. But as much as it is possible, we need to attempt to do that. But there will be times it's not possible. They are just a chronic critic. And you can pray for them and let God defend you. One person captured it this way. If it's untrue, disregard it. If it's unfair, don't get irritated. If it's ignorant, smile. And you may have to smile a lot. If it's justified, learn from it. Now, above all, let's not be those who criticize to, in this way. I mean, I know that's a different message altogether. That's not what Paul's talking about here. But let's not be those who, who are discouraging, but those who encourage others. 
Uh, Joseph Parker put it this way, resolve never to throw mud because you may miss the mark, but your hands will always be dirty when you're throwing mud. So when looking at the faults of others, use a mirror and not a microscope. Look at yourself first. But in terms of rightly responding to criticism, may we deal with the criticism that comes in our life in a, in a balanced way before the Lord. Let's pray together.